proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and I'm your host, as well as the pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. The Collective is a band of confessing pastors, planters, and churchmen, and each week we have a confessional brother come share their wisdom and experience. And in today's podcast, we have Jamar Tisby. Jamar is the co-founder, editor, and president of Reformed African American Network. Jamar, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. We just finished. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in a, a weird place, a weird season of my life. I'm actually a middle school principal for the time being, and we just finished up state testing, so feeling good at the moment. Well, did everybody pass? We won't know that for months and months and months. The efficiency of uh, a large system uh, prevents us from getting that real-time data, but uh, I feel pretty good about it. Very good, man. Very good. Um, Why don't you give our listeners just a quick 30-second bio of who you are and what you've been up to? Sure. Well, um, I'm a Midwesterner who has been transplanted to the South, and I love it. I've been down here close to 15 years. Um, My previous career was in public education, specifically charter schools, and so I joined Teach for America and I served as a middle school um, science and social studies teacher for four years. I did a year at RTS Orlando, then I went back to um, the schooling biz, and I was a principal, middle school principal, for another three years. Then I moved down to Jackson to attend Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson and finish up my Master of Divinity, and I've been here in Jackson, Mississippi ever since then. I've uh, done a couple things along the way. We started RAN back in 2011. I was also part of getting the African American Leadership Initiative started at RTS Jackson, which is a component of the seminary uh, that recruits more African Americans to the school and equips students of any race for African American multi-ethnic or urban ministry. And so I was in the midst of doing that when... um, a need came up for me to step in this role as principal, and, and I'm doing that just for the school year, and then back to life as it's crazy usual. <laughs> Very good. Hey, on the RAND page, it says something that I wanted to kind of um, start us off with, which is this. It says, the African-American church in particular has been isolated in many ways from the great, from the great reform thinkers of past and current generations, most of whom have been Western and Anglo. And I guess my question is to you, listening to your uh, bio there, here you attended Reformed Theological Seminary, you're currently working through that and now assisting them. And so what is your story, and specifically um, maybe dialogue a little bit about Rand's comments there about the uh, African-American situation in Reformed churches? Yeah, so I think it. Um, I'm sure y'all have uh, covered this before on the collective, but I always find it helpful to kind of set the context for what Reformed theology is. 
And, um, of course, the term comes from the historic Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, you know, Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses in 1517, and then all of the kind of theology and scholarship and the changes that arose from that. And that historically, because it started in Western Europe, has been a Western European, Anglo, middle to wealthy kind of class, educated class type of a movement. Now, it's affected people uh, all over the spectrum, but in terms of generating the theology, and, and, and particularly in written form, that's been largely Western European. Uh, for a lot of reasons, as Reformed theology migrates further west to North America, um, African Americans and people of color in general haven't been as included in that as as could be. Now, it's very important to, to, to understand that Reformed theology and its tenets, the sovereignty of God, the infallibility of the Bible, those kinds of things, those have always been part of uh, African-American Christianity. We just maybe didn't use the labels. However, in the 21st century, um, and this has a lot to do with the advent of, of you know, Christian hip-hop and, and things like that, the the the, the labels and the categories are, are becoming more well-known among African-Americans. Uh, and that's sort of where it intersects with my story. I did not grow up Reformed or in a Reformed-leaning church. I came to Christ in high school through the ministry of kind of a—it was a youth group that was attached to kind of a kind of seeker-sensitive evangelical kind of Baptist church— and it was predominantly white, and, you know, God used that. He, he changed my heart with the gospel. Uh, but, you know, I, I still didn't feel like I had a place there culturally. It wasn't until college where I went to the University of Notre Dame, which is a Catholic school, that the same friend who led me to Christ in high school sent me a book by John Piper called Desiring God. And the rest is history. Um, Piper has a tendency to do that with his uh, his words and his sermons. He's he's convicted me in many many uh, books and sermons, so I know what you mean. He's a he's a gift to the church. Um, let's talk a little bit about why you created Ran, and um, obviously there it says you know as as we already quoted on the page. There's obviously this great need, but but specifically why create a network. Um, for reform yeah. theology and African-Americans? Good. Um, you know, I think the most acute need among African-Americans who are getting in these circles is for fellowship. It is a story I hear all too often that folks love the theology. Um, they, they love the richness of it, the robustness of it, how it helps them understand the Bible, but they feel isolated and alone. Oftentimes they're one of the only ones or the only one, only person of color or only African-American at their church. And that's what burns people out. That's what makes them so tired and, and, and makes them walk away uh, either to another denomination or tradition or from the faith altogether. And so I've had that experience. Um, when I first learned about the doctrines of grace, uh, the first church I went to was a Dutch Reformed church. Um, and it was all white. 
and I was the only African-American. And I don't just mean one of a few. I mean the only African-American in the whole congregation. Mm. And, and it, was this, it, it was this incredibly confusing experience because on the one hand, it was the first time I heard expository, exegetical preaching, the pastor going verse by verse through books of the Bible consecutively. And it was amazing. Uh, teaching and preaching and broadened my understanding of God and the Bible immensely. But at the same time, I felt so connected theologically, I felt very disconnected culturally. Like, they, they, they just nobody was mean, nobody called me the N-word, it wasn't anything like that, but it was just very clear that we were in two different worlds, and my concerns and the priorities and topics that I was having to address as an African-American in our culture just weren't even on the radar for them. And so... I found a book called On Being Black and Reformed by Anthony Carter, and that was a godsend because I said, finally, there are other people out there like me. I'm not the only black and reformed person. Mm. Um, and so that kind of got me through a little bit longer, but it was still this dichotomy of you know having this theology articulated explicitly in churches, but those churches were almost always predominantly white. And so I went up to Chattanooga at the um, invitation of Y. Plummer, who is the African-American ministry coordinator for Mission to North America, which is part of the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America. And he had um, basically all the black seminarians at Reformed seminaries that he could find. And there were probably 10 or 11 of us. It wasn't a big group. But we went there and it was such a, it was like a family reunion. We had so much in common, both theologically and culturally, it was like we had known each other our whole lives. And it was coming away from that, that, that I said, you know what, we need this kind of fellowship more often. And that's where the idea of RAN was born. And what are some of the goals that you have set for RAN? You know, our goals are uh, a, a few. Number one, we want to provide resources in the Reformed tradition. So when I, like I said, I didn't grow up Reformed. I didn't even know there was such a thing called Reformed theology. So when I was first learning about it, I had to follow all these breadcrumbs. You know, I had to look at footnotes and endnotes and try to find pastors and churches and books. And it was just hard when you were first coming into it to, to know what resources were out there and what, which ones you could trust. So part of what we do is just to collect that information in one spot. So at our website, rannetwork.org, R-A-A-Network.org, you'll find a resources tab with colleges and seminaries, books, um, different websites, things like that, so that if you are getting introduced to this and you want to find out more, it's a little bit easier. Um, secondly, we want to provide a community. We're a network. And so that's why African-American is in the name. Uh, there was a lot of debate in the beginning about whether it should be something broader than that. So, you know, the, the reform multi-ethnic network or something. This is me and folks can disagree, but I thought it was important to specifically name African-Americans because if we don't see that in the name, if we don't see that up front somewhere, it, it's not readily apparent that it is specifically geared toward African-American core concerns and issues. And so we want that to be a blinking billboard on the Internet highway for reformed black folks that says, I need to check this out. And I think we've done a pretty good job of that. I think most African-Americans who would self-identify as reformed know about the network. And it can be a place where, just like that book by Tony Carter, you can say that I'm not the only one. 
Well, personally, I can see how excited I am about what you're saying. Um, the denomination I belong to really doesn't have an African-American presence at all. Mm-hmm. And um, our headquarters is in Detroit, and or just outside of Detroit, and 20 minutes from it, and we don't have an African-American pastor wow. in the city. And yeah. so God really convicted me about that. Um, I know you and I've talked before. I have a we have a mutual friend in Doug Logan who really poured into me and encouraged me that we need to reconsider what we can do here. And <laughs> uh, through connections, was able to uh, come across a gentleman, uh, Brian Evans. And Brian had grown up in the city of Detroit, had um, by God's grace been saved, and had to go to the Detroit Public Library in the church history section where he first encountered Luther and Calvin and some of the other uh, reform cats that we're, we're all excited about, but he had no contextual bearing, so he started visiting different churches, found his way into a reformed Presbyterian church, but like you, just realized how out of context he was. Yeah. And he really had a hard time, and through his story, it's just melted my heart to how much we need to do to bridge that gap without being in the way. And as a, a white church in the suburbs, what can we do? And so we started a residency, but we're doing everything we can to help Brian plant in the city. And it's networks like yours that have really awakened me to the the need, um, you know, in not just Detroit, but, but throughout the United States. Yeah. Well, we have a lot in common with Detroit. Um, I say all the time that Jackson, Mississippi has the second highest population or proportion of African-Americans of any city over 100,000 people. It's at 80%. And the only city higher (laughs) is Detroit at 84%. That's as of the 2000 census. So I'm sure it's changed slightly, but similar dynamics of, you know, I'm in a Southern Presbyterian context and yet African-Americans, which are so highly represented within the major city of of the state are so underrepresented within the denomination and that tension is is part of why ran is formed um but you also mentioned something else that i wanted to point out the third kind of goal or aim of the reformed african-american network touches on something you mentioned just about finding um in the website and in the content there touch points of theology that intersect with what what folks are trying to do and live out, particularly in terms of racial and ethnic diversity. So the third aim of the Reformed African American Network is to develop theology in community. We want to resist any idea of theological imperialism, where we just kind of import Reformed theology as is and say to the Black community, here you go. Um, What we want to recognize is that uh, people of African descent have a rich Christian history and theology, and they have something to bring to the table, too. And we want to put these traditions in dialogue and come up with something uh, even more robust and ready to tackle the issues and the, the, the questions of the 21st century. Well, you bring up something uh, really worthwhile talking about, which is the contextual differences that will take place. I mean, we see this even just in going from the rural context to the suburb context to the urban context, but then you add um, the fact of uh, uh, racial issues on that as well. You know, uh, Charlie Dates wrote an article not too long ago on let's don't give up on the black church. Yeah, and and there you know all these different dialogues and and what does it look like contextually? Uh, whether you're a white suburbanite or 
uh, urban African-American, what, what, what is the contextual um, necessity of the way you worship? And then theologically, how that plays out, us all holding the line on Reformed theology, whether it be the regulative principle or whatever. So I, I would be interested to hear your thoughts on some of that. So like some of the differences, the contextual differences? Yeah, and how, how that plays out into Reformed theology. Because I know that even even within the idea of, uh, of the regulative principle, there's a mm-hmm. variety within the suburb churches and all that. But what does that look like even too when we add the, the race element to it as well? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a rabbit hole that you can tumble down forever if you want to. I think there are kind of aesthetic deals, um, that are that are different. Obviously, there would be things like the music and the music selection, which gets to the regulative principle. And, and a lot of that depends on how you interpret the regulative principle. Does the regulative principle say, does it does it does it say that only what the Bible expressly commands as worship is lawful? Or does it say that as long as the Bible doesn't forbid it um, in explicitly or in principle, uh, is it permissible? And I think people take different approaches and it leads them down different roads in terms of the worship styles that you see. But I would say that Reformed churches that are multi-ethnic or African-American do adhere to the regulative principle and that worship is structured by the Bible. But, um, you know, the church I go to is intentionally multi-ethnic. And what, what that looks like in terms of Worship is, number one, we're intentional that people on the, the podium, people up front, are diverse. And so uh, the, the ministerial assistants and the interns and the senior minister that we have, we want to always make sure that at least two different ethnicities are represented. Um, and of course, that doesn't even include the choir and, and members of it. Uh, in addition, in terms of the music, there's a big variety. And so we'll sing classic hymns, we'll sing uh, contemporary music, we'll sing gospel music. So what we want to do is showcase the diversity of the body. Um, and I think in mono-ethnic churches, they would adhere you know, predominantly to one particular style. Um, and so some of those are, are the surface differences. I think the more meaningful ones have to do with things like in your sermon, what illustrations and applications do you use? Uh, do you take time out, maybe not from the pulpit, but somewhere in the life of the church, whether a Wednesday night service or, or a Sunday school, to talk about racism and um, continued injustices that, that, that uh, have something to do with um, you know, the historic inequalities of our nation? Is that being discussed, and how is it being discussed? Is it is it, you know, in evangelicalism, which Reformed theology would, would, would fall more than uh, other labels, it's almost assumed that you're Republican. Is that the norm at the church? Um, is, would, you get, would you get a crazy look if somebody said they voted Democrat or something else like that? Uh, because those are just signs of the kind of two different worlds that African-Americans and whites sometimes live in. 
it seems sometimes, and as you're talking, I'm listening and hearing things that our own church has wrestled through with trying to help plant a church in the inner city and, and helping us recognize that the church won't look just like us in the way it functions, the way it operates. Yes. There's not going to be, uh, we're, we're, we're not uh, colonializing a, a, a small portion in, the, in what we call the our zip code that we're hitting is the 48224 in Detroit. Okay. It, it, we're not colonializing there. What we're, what we're trying to do is we understand that it's going to be distinct. It's going to be different. And what I hear you saying a lot of is that, look, as long as the Word of God is where what drives our worship, the, the outworking of that is going to be unique. And, and yet we saw this in missions years ago, right, where people would go over and they tried to make everyone like a westernized mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yep. style of worship, style of dress, the, the, the worship services, everything were, were bent that way. And I, real, I think we realized through that, through their missiology, that that was wrong. And yes. that we want to raise up the indigenous people of a particular context to carry on um, and allow the Bible to direct that worship and that and 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 that theology and and such there. Um, but I want I want to step into kind of a a, a more uh, a current uh, issue. You, you see things like posted today. Uh, George Zimmerman, he, uh, oh, it, right? And he he's out to auction off his gun that Come that on. was used. Yeah. You know. And all this stuff is going on, and the evangelical church is present in all of this mess. And I guess one of the questions I would have for you is, what can the church be doing that it's not doing right now to help with, to call it what it is, these race relations that were, these tensions yeah. that we're starting to feel? Uh, there's a lot. Um, I think in principle, this is how I like to think of it. I think of it in terms of the acronym ARC, A-R-C. A stands for awareness, R is for relationships, and C is for commitment. So the first step is awareness. There are so many people, especially in the majority, but I also say, I've talked to a lot of college and high school kids, uh, black and white, and they just don't know history. I mean, that's kind of a perennial issue, but for folks who didn't live through the civil rights movement, they don't know the racial history and then conversely, you know, by a corollary, they don't know the ongoing effects of, of those um, r- racial events and dynamics of the past. So awareness in particular, I think, means learning the racial history of the United States and with a, with a, with a focus on the history of, of race and Christianity and how we have to acknowledge the fact that for a long, long time, in American history, up until very recently, folks were using the Bible to justify slavery and segregation and the dominance of lighter-skinned people over darker-skinned people. We got to know that, and we've got to contend with that. And it's only by knowing the history, not just the Christian history, but uh, sort of the social and political history as well, that we come to grips with how deep this problem really goes. And I think that people have a very shallow understanding of racism, that is calling people names, that is putting signs over drinking fountains. And since we passed laws in the 60s, all of that's over and done with and we're post-racial. It's a very naive view of racial dynamics in general and in the United States in particular. So we gotta first tell the stories and we tell the truth. And churches, I think, especially historic churches would do well to go and look at their the minutes of their you know deacons meetings or the elders meetings and say you know are there things in there that in the 50s and 60s or before we affirmed that we need to repudiate because until we go back and reveal those skeletons and deal with them 
we, we, we can't have true reconciliation. Um, so that's one factor. <laughs> Another factor is relationships. I think, you know, anyone you ask who has thought for half a second about um, reconciliation knows that you got to have friendships, personal relationships with people who are different from you, uh, particularly racially, ethnically, culturally. And all of that's very biblical. Um, Christ himself is incarnational and relational in taking on flesh. What he did was say, I need to be near to my people. I need to be touched and touch them. I need to hear them speak. I need to smell the smells and shake their hands and touch their wounds. And I need to be close and in relationship. And he, and he chose 12 disciples to walk with him closely to really pour into. And I think the same thing. And, and in doing so, he brought us reconciliation with God and then thereby reconciliation with one another. And I think if we're going to, as Christ followers, have reconciliation with one another. And it's got to be incarnational. It's got to be relational. And then lastly is commitment. So you've learned the history. You know people who are different from you. You have your black friend or whatever it is. So what? What are you doing about it? And the commitment looks a lot, it can look a lot of different ways, but I think what we really have to talk about in terms of racial justice and racial reconciliation is power. We've got to start to change the power dynamics in the church and society if we ever want to see true reconciliation. And so I think of um, in Acts when uh, they were arguing over the distribution of food and that the Hellenists weren't getting the food. Well, the, 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 the Christians of Jewish descent completely transferred the power of the deacons to the Hellenists. And in so doing, ensured a more equitable distribution of the materials in a similar way. What does that look like in the church? What does it mean for people in the majority who have historically had the power to give that power away willingly in love to minorities who have been historically marginalized? And that's what we really have to wrestle with. Well, what, what you're bringing up is something that, again, I was asked was, how many African-Americans do I have on my bookshelf? Uh-huh. And, you know, I, I sat there and I went, wow, I, I don't have, I think maybe one, two, you know. And I guess one of the things I would ask you are, what are some good books that, that we can be throwing at our listeners and say, hey, read these to g- begin to get into the dialogue and, and even I- in the aspect of theology, anything you can throw at us that you would say, hey, this is, I recommend this for your bookshelf if you're a church leader. Great. Um, there, there is, there are thankfully a lot more books coming out. Um, so this isn't by an African American author, but I think we need to read it. Is um, it's called From Every People and Nation by J. Daniel Hayes, and it is a biblical theological treatment of race and ethnicity in the Bible. And it's very thorough. It's slightly technical. It's not a popular level book, but it is extremely helpful to form a biblical basis of ethnicity and how we ought to understand that from scripture. Another book, and this is actually the first book I'd recommend for anybody just getting into it, is Divided by Faith. And again, not by African-American authors, but it's by uh, sociologists Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. And it just talks about why do we have racially separate churches in the first place. So it talks a bit about the history. It talks a lot about the sociology and it basically says, I'm sorry to say, but white evangelicals are a big part of the problem because they don't realize race is such a big problem. 
Um, and there was, in fact, a Barna study that I just looked at today that basically said if you're a white evangelical Republican, you are the least likely of other demographic groups to think that race is still an issue. And that's a problem. So, um, you know, the divided by faith will help set a context for, for why our churches are, are segregated by race in the first place. You want to know some African-American authors? I would certainly recommend Jarvis Williams. He wrote um, the book One New Man, and he is a New Testament professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And so that book is a treatment of reconciliation in Paul and um, just basically goes through all of Paul's writings talking about how uh, reconciliation with God empowers and actually already accomplishes reconciliation with one another across racial and ethnic lines. That's a great one. The one I mentioned earlier by Tony Carter on being black and reformed is a good uh, introduction. Any of Thabiti Anyabwile's works, he has some work, he has one called The Faithful Preacher, which examines the actual sermons of African Americans from, uh, I think, the 18th century on up to almost the present. Uh, as examples of reformed preaching. He has another book called The Decline of African-American Theology that's helpful. And then his latest book is about the black church. And so I would recommend any of those works. And of course, Carl Ellis uh, Jr. is a, a great theologian and, and has some really interesting ideas. Uh, he, he's written one book. Uh, the name of it is escaping me, but Carl F. Ellis Jr. is another one. There was an episode not too long ago, and you spoke about it on Pass the Mic, and this is where it uh, caught my attention, and the specific episode was dealing with Dr. White of Alpha and Omega um, mm-hmm. Ministries, and it was uh, where he put a dash cam on his car, and he was driving, and some comments he made about what he saw take place, and here is a, uh, a popular um, apologist in the Reformed kind of movement who made some comments, and specifically some of the things that he brought out were that um, he saw a young black man flip off the police, toss a bottle into the bushes, and basically he went on to say that there's a 70% chance that this boy never met his father, and he says that that 70% only increases that this boy will uh, father multiple children and eventually pad the pockets of Planned Parenthood. And I'm trying to quote him as best I can from uh, the, the document I have. But what is, what is mind-blowing about those comments is that Dr. White doesn't even think there's an issue with what he said. And I think this goes right back to the heart of what you were saying, that white evangelicals are part of the problem. And I just want you to speak to that, because I know you're very passionate specifically on this topic. Yeah, and, and, and I'll just say this uh, by way of introduction. I do not normally, I'm not the kind who jumps into every fray or every, you know, social media controversy because there's one every week and they're seldom productive, often more divisive. So it's not something I ever even wanted to get involved in, except that a few of my friends who I knew personally, again, that relationship aspect of the ARC acronym, they were very, they were very big fans of James White. And so they were very hurt by these comments and when they engaged him about it on social media, because that's where the original post was was put, uh, the response they felt was extremely defensive and dismissive. And 
I waited three full days, which in the social media world is almost an eternity uh, before I said anything. And I didn't know it was going to be so controversial. And it was kind of like the many headed Hydra. Just when you thought you killed it, another head grows back to replace it. So, you know, I'm weary of the whole conversation because it has dragged on so long. It's been very unproductive in so many ways. That being said, I think it's educational and instructive for those who are seeking to learn. Um, you know, statistics have their place. They can tell you broad and general trends. But when you come face to face with a human being, you're dealing with that human being and not a statistic. And that's what the post felt like to me was that he had taken statistics, some of which were wildly erroneous, and applied them to this person he'd never had any sort of personal relationship with, somebody he saw through the windshield and in a snapshot of his life. Uh, basically extrapolated his entire destiny. And I think that's patently unfair. And race came into it in the original post. It's not like people responding to James White brought it up. He said it was a black teenager. And um, so many black males in particular, having had that experience and worse, you know, where it's like, hey, you may not want to do that. There's all these other considerations, and it was just so frustrating that it didn't seem to get a hearing. Now, you know, moving beyond Dr. White and moving to the bigger scheme of the broad evangelical church, the problem is the comments a man like Dr. White makes, and he doesn't see as being racial, is what often takes place in the evangelical world, why it makes it so difficult to have some of these race comments. Because like you said, earlier in the podcast, you said the old signs uh, above drinking fountains of colored and white are, have been removed. Mm -hmm. And therefore, everything's good. But the reality, it's not. And one of the things we can say about that is the statistic, even a denomination like mine, about how few African-Americans there are in the Reformed Church that I, you know, denomination that I participate in. And so there is obviously some issues. And uh, I, you hear statistics all the time that the most div divided hour uh, on any given day is 11 o'clock on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And yet the church still doesn't seem to resonate with these things. And I guess, you know, we, we, we as theologians know the, the root problem is always original sin. But what are some of the other tensions that you think just broadly kind of painting a broad brushstroke against uh, evangelicalism that you see as to why this is so hard to deroot? I think a big part of it is we live in such separate worlds. Um, we go to church in different places. We go to school in different places. We live in different places. Uh, we get our hair cut in different places. We are separate for most of our existence. And, and, and this is, like I said, it's a rabbit hole you can tumble down forever because part of it's class. And so, you know, middle class African-Americans are going to rub elbows with whites more often and have a lot more in common culturally, but I work with low-income students at the school and their parents, and I'm telling you, between suburban evangelical Christianity and the folks I interact with on a daily basis, never the twain shall meet. And so I think uh, for you know evangelicals, white evangelicals, a lot of this is hard to understand because they don't really see how different it is to experience life in America 
as an African-American, particularly if you're low income. Now, it should be said in the same breath that uh, low income people of any race, um, including poor whites, experience America very differently. And that's part of the problem. But, um, you know, just in general, just that lack of being near each other and understanding each other's worlds is a big deal. There's also the the erroneous definition of racism, which is combined to uh, personal forms of racism and prejudice, so that it's it's relational. And that certainly is the case. You might feel superior to someone because of their skin color or culture. But now, and really this has always been the case, but even more prominently now, racism is is embedded in the power structures of society. And so some people will call it institutional or systemic racism, uh, but it's the way that society is built around whiteness so that it it gives certain advantages to people who are white and disadvantages to people of color. Now, I got to say this. When I say advantages to people who are white, it doesn't mean every white person experiences every advantage or every advantage equally. What it really means is that your white, your skin color is not a liability. So that if you are experiencing hardship like poverty or single parent household or inability to get a job, it has much less to do with your skin color than it would for a person of color, particularly an African-American. And the, the, the inability or the refusal to see how racism functions on an institutional level is a major issue uh, uh, behind why we, we aren't making more progress faster. How do denominations begin to work through this stuff? Um, how do we begin to build bridges? And I know you gave some at the, at the gra- grassroots level of how I can start to, to work towards my neighbor, but at, on a, an organizational level, like you're in the PCA, how are you guys beginning to work through this? A oh, great and timely question. I'm, I'm actually quite excited about where the PCA is right now. And for listeners who may not be familiar, the denomination was started in 1973 as a continuing Presbyterian church. And what they wanted to continue was um, theological orthodoxy in contradistinction to what is now the PCUSA. Um, and some of the compromises they thought they were making about the authority of Scripture and uh, involvement in different issues in the world. So, and, and evangelism was a big part of it. And so uh, you've got this Southern Presbyterian denomination that grew out of historic Southern Presbyterianism, which is so-called because in the 1860s, just before the Civil War, they broke away from the National Protestant denomina- National Presbyterian denomination um, over the issue of slavery, and they wanted to preserve slavery and, and all of that. So you have these roots in the denomination, but lately there's been major movement. So back in 2015 at the General Assembly, which is the national meeting of the elders, it's their big business meeting um, that they have every year, um, Sean Michael Lucas and Ligon Duncan, who are both professors at Reformed Theological Seminary and um, ordained uh, pastors, they presented the personal resolution on civil rights remembrance. And that came about because Sean Lucas noticed, okay, the denomination repented for slavery and its actions back in 1861, but it hadn't done anything about its actions or inactions in 1961 during civil rights movement. And so this resolution was for that. Well, long drama, the resolution ultimately did not pass that year, but it got referred to the 2016 General Assembly. And the idea behind that was 
the, the folks at the 2015 assembly wanted churches to think through reconciliation and not just have this pronouncement handed down, but wanted all the churches to, to deeply consider this and then to come back in 2016 and um, make a decision. So that's what's been happening. And you, you asked what denominations can do. A lot of churches are, like I said earlier, going back in their history and saying, where were we? When, when, when the civil rights movement was happening? What were we doing or not doing? And how can we publicly state, you know, we were in the wrong if we didn't do anything, if we didn't ally ourselves with the marginalized and with uh, the cause of justice, and we repudiate that. So some churches are doing that. They're crafting more resolutions that articulate specifically what they did wrong. And understand, this is something I've started to understand living in the South, this is not an abstract exercise. So when they repudiate things, they're repudiating what their granddaddy said or what their uncle said. These are family members and friends and people they know. So I think as minorities, we need to continually push for justice, but also be sensitive because it's harder than it would appear if you're in the major if, if you're in the minority, it's harder uh, for folks in the majority than I might understand. That is not an excuse. We need to make progress, and we need to make it yesterday. But I think those are steps in the right direction. Jamar, thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us these insights. And you've given us a lot to think about, everything from the importance of your network, RAND, and uh, to the issues of the evangelical church and how it can begin to bridge the gap between the races and even on a denominational level. So thank you for your time. We know we took some time away from you there at work in your office, but we thank you for the time you gave us. Yeah, and if people want to learn more, uh, if you're on Twitter, you can follow us at Rand Network, or our uh, podcast is Pass the Mic, and you can follow us at underscore Pass the Mic. And we would we also have a, a Facebook group. It's a, it's a closed group, so you have to request um, access to it but I don't think we've turned anybody away, so don't be nervous. Um, but it's called Pass the Mic, and you can just look for us on Facebook. Great. Thanks, and everybody have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook page.